This episode is brought to you in partnership with Life Kitchens. Life create kitchens to be lived in, planned around your life and the way you live it. Explore their unique ranges and book a design consultation for a personal and practical approach to kitchens. Visit life-kitchens.co.uk. It was when I studied forestry that you really start to understand trees a little bit and the more you study both trees and actually wood as well, the more you realise that they're both very complex things actually and a huge amount of depth and, and we rely on them far more than we give them credit for actually. They provide so much and have done for centuries or even millennia and um, and they're fabulous. They're the, they're the one living organism that outlives everything else. Hello, I'm Carol Annett from Country and Townhouse magazine. Welcome to the House Guest Podcast, where I chat with experts from the world of interior design and decoration, the people behind the houses, hotels, shops and brands you see in glossy magazines like ours. If you listen on the Entail app, there's more information and images on the projects and people mentioned. And if you're doing up your own home, hopefully you'll pick up some tips for yourself. My guest today is Simon Burville, who has a passion for timber. His outdoor furniture company, Gaze Burville, has a long association with the Royal Horticultural Society and the Royal Botanic Gardens at Kew. Gaze Burville tables and chairs can be found scattered in hundreds of gardens from prestigious estates to teeny cottages. Hi, Simon, welcome. Well, thank you for that. Pleasure. And uh, it's lovely to see you. Now, tell me a bit about your passion for furniture and particularly your passion for wood. Where did it all start? Well, it started with my carpentry teacher at school, Abel Seaman Humby. And he taught us um, how to make a mortise and tenon and how to sharpen our chisels. I mean, this is when I was eight or nine. And we had to make a little book holder, which we still got at home. Had to make a sort of rocking footrest, which was one of my mother's treasured possessions. And, you know, he taught us really to use our hands, you know, and everything else at school was all academic. And, you know, one of the few classes that you, you got away from that sort of thing was the carpentry class. I think it's a great shame that it's, you know, it doesn't happen enough at schools these days. But anyway, I started with him. Then, you know, used to make things. My father's quite a keen carpenter as well. I mean, he was a Royal Naval engineer, um, but uh, we, you know, we made the kitchen table. We got some photos at home of all five children standing away on this cross frame of, of a table. And then I sort of didn't do it for quite a while, but when we, after university, Caroline and I moved to Paris and I very nearly set up a business making mezzanine floors in Paris. I built a mezzanine floor in the apartment that we were renting from a friend of ours and it had this quite fancy spoke wheel sort of effect coming out. It went around with a staircase going up which I had to build and then uh, the beams instead of being rectangular were, were like a spokes of a wheel. Anyway that was our experience there. I got cold feet of having a, a business in France. So we lived in Paris for six years and then I it was on a skiing holiday actually. I read about John Makepeace and Parnham and I went and visited him and he was you know still full on with the school for craftsmen in wood but he'd set up this other more eco-friendly college called Hook Park which I went and visited at the time and I was just bowled over by it because you studied forestry and furniture making 
And at that point, I wasn't really that familiar with forestry, but since then, uh, the, the connection's grown. Because you always, I know for you, it's very much the importance about connecting with nature. Yeah. I mean, we've always been outdoorsy people. I lo love the outdoors. But um, it was when I studied forestry that you really start to understand trees a little bit. And the more you study both trees and actually wood as well, the more you realise that they're both very complex things, actually, and there's a huge amount of depth. And, and we rely on them far more than we give them credit for, actually. They provide so much and have done for centuries or even millennia. And... Um, and they're fabulous. They're the, they're the one living organism that outlives everything else. They, you know, they have these amazing properties. Um, and they're the really one truly sustainable material that we use. And why furniture making? You know, why is it so important for the business of wood being made into furniture? Well, I suppose that comes a, bit, a little bit from my engineering roots as well, is that I like making things. And when I first started engineering, I thought you could make power stations and things like that. But you soon find out that you only do a tiny little bit of that. And there's something enormously satisfying about furniture in that you can make a whole piece. So you can see it right from the beginning to the end. And that's really satisfying. But also, they're just pieces that people are in, you know, it's a very human thing. You're not going to have a robot sitting on a chair. So they're made for humans. And they're very, in my view, they've got to be comfortable. They've got to be practical. So it's, there's an enormous amount of challenges. I mean, a chair is still one of the most challenging objects to create, I think. And then we add on an extra layer of complexity, which is designing things to last outside. And there's all sorts of challenges that go with that because you're then using the material in a way where it, it expands and contracts constantly between the summer and the winter. Every year it has this sort of living cycle. Uh, I think the French have a lovely expression. They say, il travaille, it works. And it just, it, you know, if you don't use it correctly, it'll work itself apart. But if you use it correctly, you can get, you know, really wonderful lasting pieces. And do you only use British timbers? We use only in temperate hardwoods. I've also quickly learned that in forestry in Britain, we almost wiped out our forests entirely. In 1900, we were down to 5% tree cover in this country, whereas the European average is 30%. So we lost- What have we done, burnt them? No, well, uh, a lot of them pit props, ships mainly, a lot of the Royal Navy, industrial age, yeah, burning a lot, charcoal, everything. It was a, it was a massive raw material building as well, everything. And also turning the land into agricultural land. Um, I mean, a little bit, like, sadly, what's going on in Brazil. But the thing is that now, we're up to 15% tree cover in this country, but that's only really been established since the Forestry Commission, which was started after World War One, when they felt we nearly lost the war due to lack of timber. So we mainly source from uh, continental Europe and France, really. The French have got this fantastic tradition of growing oak. Oak is our primary material we use. 90% of what we do is in oak, and that mainly comes from France. We do use some British oak, and I love using British oak, when we can get hold of it and it's the right quality. It has to be forest grown uh, to get the clean, straight timber that we need. So we've got a wonderful oak tree I look at out of my window just here, which is perfectly safe for me because it's got branches going all the way down to the ground. Uh, <laughs> so, so it would be rubbish and timber. I know that you have a story about a particular piece of wood that does have 
um, a fault in it. Is that your for the wood from the victory? Yeah, well, that no, we've got. I mean, I've got one of the pieces just here, actually. And yeah, this piece of timber is nearly two hundred years old. So fact, tell, so tell us how that commission came about. So this was a this was a project for a gentleman, well, actually an admiral from the navy who um, was passionate again about the victory and things. And and after his successful naval career, then actually went on to be a very successful businessman. And for his 90th birthday, we were commissioned to make a, a special May throne with um, a piece. So we, we were able to incorporate exceptionally piece because he had donated a huge amount to the restoration of the victory. So, where, so we did, went, where did they find a bit spare? Because you, you can't exactly go and just help yourself. <laughs> no, you can't. You can't. We were, we were very lucky. We went down there and we weren't sure whether it would be appropriate, but they, they have this lovely gallery down in Portsmouth where there's a, an archive of all these bits because they've, they've had to strip off a lot off the victory at the moment because as it's in dry dock, it was collapsing under its own weight. So they'd taken some off, but also these sacks, they had these sacks, which were, were uh, so it was the late 19th century. So these sacks were 150 years old, full of bits from when they changed her bow over because originally this um, naval ar archeologist was telling me when she came back from the Battle of Trafalgar, they decided to keep her and she's still a commissioned ship of the Royal Navy in fact. They hold uh, Admiralty dinners on her and, and there's a part which is still reserved for, for the Royal Navy on board that you can't go in. But they decided that they would give her, because they were going to carry on using her, a new bow of the new tradition, because she was already 50 or 60, 60 years old by then, and naval architecture had moved on. So they changed her bow, she went back out to sea for quite a few more decades, and then she was retired properly to dry dock in Portsmouth. And then as a, as a memorial piece, they thought it would be more fitting to give her back her original bow, which is a much more bulbous arc-like piece. I mean, it's very attractive, it's very beautiful. So they swapped it back again. Um, and so there was all this timber that came off then, and it's just been in sacks ever since, and it's very difficult. I mean, the, the, this um, young naval archeologist was trying to figure out where every one of these pieces was would go in case they, I don't know, want to reconstruct the previous power. But I mean, some of these pieces, you can tell they're really, there's really not much you can tell from this. It probably was, I mean, there's a lot of pitch on it there. Might have been a deck piece or something like that. But we, we took, uh, uh, you know, a couple of small morsels. The other piece was slightly better shaped for what we had intended. So, um, and what did and, you uh, uh, so, it, you know, we made this front piece, but it was very important that we didn't completely <laughs> destroy the evidence of the fact that it came off this fantastic ship. So it was quite a challenge, you know, keeping things a bit like this. I mean, I think, yeah, yeah you've got, had pieces like this hole here in it, where obviously that was, and, and another one here, these would have been probably large dowels or something like that to peg it into a, another, another joining piece of timber. So, so he still had all of that flavour, but, but had a jolly comfortable May throne. And then we did magnificent carving on the back as well. So um, it, was a, it was a seat and you used the wood from the Victory on the, on the actual seat. Yeah, on, on one of the pieces of the seat. So you sat on it, yeah. Yeah, it's rather nice. yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah, he loved it. So that was great. 
And tell me about the association with Q. How did that come about? So I first bumped into Tony Kirkham at a, a garden design conference. Um, we were giving a talk, in fact, I was going to talk about woodland heritage to community of garden designers about, must have been about 12 years ago now. And Tony was up next with the talk about tree hunting and, and you know, he carrying on the fantastic tradition of going around the world, finding seeds of exotic trees and bringing them back to Kew. Incredibly knowledgeable, very adventurous and very humorous guy. And we got on really well. And um, so we, you know, we stayed in touch and I bumped into him on several talks. We see him every year at Chelsea. And we did do a couple of projects, donated seats for Kew. I bumped into him again then. So, you know, I wasn't that closely connected, but then suddenly in, it was November, 2013, uh, he rang me and said, Simon, there's a tree I want you to come and have a look at. And he said, it's a very special tree. It's called the Bear Dun Oak. And it's, we've had a terrible storm damage in Storm Jude that went through queue in October, 2013. And I said, yeah, I'll come and have a look. And I went up there in January, 2014. They'd had to fell the tree because it had lost a major limb and it was no longer balanced and it was in danger of falling. So they took it down and um, he had it in his yard and it was terribly sad actually. I got pictures of it, it's, you know, sort of shoved up against the building on its side. But he said, you know, can you do anything with it? And when he rang me, I mean, I thought the maths is 97, it was 97 years old, which is really very young for a tree for us to use. But I said, look, I'll come and have a look. He sent me some photos. And actually it was huge. It wasn't very long. So it was a classic parkland tree. So trees grow through their canopy. It's, it's the, the factory in the tree is all the leaves and they're producing all the timber. So if you look at an oak tree, which has got a huge canopy, it's gonna grow very fast. And this was an immense canopy. And then it had a stem coming up, which was only like any parkland tree. I think it was about three meters to the first major branch. So it was short and stocky. And we were only interested in the bowl of the trunk. And because it had grown in 97 years, it was as big as the 150 year old trees that we normally get. But he said, make me a bench for Q for November 2018. Uh, he's very passionate to mark the end of the war. He said, I can't bear all these preparations to mark the beginning of World War One because we were still before then <laughs> but, but we want to celebrate the end and I said absolutely yeah and anyway I said well we uh, you know we need that time anyway because it's only four and a bit years which in tree talk and wood talk is is nothing um, <laughs> so uh, so we had to get a move on you know so I got and and I got roped in another um, woodsman that I know Jeff Tyler who's got, got a business Tyler Hardwoods who real expert on trees and we went and looked at it we we actually ended up taking 14 other trees that were also blown down in this storm and we got them all milled in a day uh, we had this one quarter sawn which is why this piece i've got here has still got that angle on it and in fact it was a massive adventure because the first we we were on the final quarter of the tree and they'd been over it with a metal detector and everything and they hit some nails and you know sawyers hate nails <laughs> uh, and it broke the saw blades chipped it all he was furious he stopped it he said i'm not cutting any more of this um, and we ended up with this big wedge shape 
with some nails still in it. Um, and actually, but we had a load of timber and the, the, the cut timber we were going to use for this, we were already starting to have in mind something we might make it into. Um, but we had this very big V-shaped piece of wood that we made, actually, we made another bench out of that, um, just cradling it in a couple of core 10 cradles with the markings of the, of the nails. And that one we delivered to Q and it was unveiled on the 21st of December, 2016, which was the, the anniversary, 100 years after the Battle of Verdun actually ended. Um, so where, whereabouts, really nice. whereabouts is it in Q, if, if anybody? So, so that V-shaped seat is overlooking the lake and looking towards the great palm house. And it has a temple up behind it on top of a mound. And actually, if you're sat in it, on your right, there's another big oak tree, and that was a sister tree. That's another Verdun oak. So it's it's very close to the other one, which is really nice. So those are there. And then finally, we made the the big seat, which is called Remembrance and Hope. Um, and it's it's got one half, it curves, it's on a curve. So one half is curving in, and it faces the War Memorial, just near Victoria Gate. And the other side faces outwards and it faces towards the palm house. And it's a, it's a really exuberant piece, sort of full of hope, basically, and uh, stuff like that, yeah. Ah, nice story, nice story. Yeah. And so you're based in Hampshire. And if people want to come and have a look round, is the workshop open? Can people come? Yeah, in, in normal conditions. <laughs> it's, yeah, we, lo we love taking visitors. If people would like to visit the workshop, we'll be putting up some open days. The nice thing about that is we do a few things to make it really translate for people. So we'll get some trees or boards rather, and we put them upright in the workshop. So you can almost picture the tree they came out of. And we can show the pruning marks where somebody a hundred years ago would have cut the branches off the tree so that it became clear timber um, and all these sort of management things but as well as showing steam bending demonstrations and things like that. So it's, it's really, you know, you get the full experience, but we have, we're very fortunate here. We're on a farm or an old farm buildings, got a beautiful grade two listed barn. Um, I think the next, actually the next event we're going to be holding, touch wood, which I do all the time. We're having a Chelsea preview on the 3rd and 4th of July. When are they doing Chelsea this year? So Chelsea is now, the third week of September. Okay. And um, so normally, yeah, the, which is an extraordinary thing and, and we're quite excited about it in a way because it'll be the one and only time it's not been in May, uh, which has an added bonus in that Cara and I have our wedding anniversary on the 19th of May. <laughs> we're always at the Chelsea Flower Show. He's always manning the stand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's in, in uh, yeah, the third week of September, but we like to hold a Chelsea preview. Actually, it's going to be on the Friday the 9th and Saturday the 10th of July. Oh, and when we try to get... That's my birthday. Ah, lovely, Carol. <laughs> well, you so have to come I'll, and join I'll us. There. I'll be there yeah. because I know yeah. you also have some sneaky bottles of champagne hidden behind me. Yeah, yeah. No, that'll be great. <laughs> that'll be great. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Simon. Good. It's, um, good, good. You're, you're passion for your for what you do absolutely shines through and I think that um, 
I know you do a lot of reconditioning and refurbishing, mm. you know, so when, when mm. people do buy a piece from you, it's very much, you know, buying for a lifetime, you know, which is all part of the kind of sustainability and, um, you know. It's yeah, really that's terrifically important as well. Yeah. No. Uh, thanks so much. Thank you. Really lovely to talk. Okay. Thanks for listening to House Guests from Country and Townhouse magazine with me, Carol Annett. Don't forget to subscribe to the series on iTunes or Entail, where you can also find images, links and notes to enhance each episode. In the meantime, you can follow me on Instagram at Carol W. Annett. And keep up to date on all the podcast news and show notes online at countryandtownhouse.co.uk slash podcast. And please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. For more news and views in the world of interior design, sign up to our newsletter at countryandtownhouse.co.uk and why not listen in to our sister podcast, Breakout Culture, with Lord Ed Vasey and Charlotte Fruity Metcalf. <laughs>